0: that 2020 will be over in four days. But even as I say that, I can't help but think a lot can happen in four days, (laughs) especially this year. There's been a lot of talk about this year and how rough it's been. And man, it's been a hard year. I don't know how y'all see this, but in my opinion, 2021... Isn't really just gonna be an escape. Like, we can't cross the finish line at the end of 2020 and say, well, let's put that all behind us and move on. 2021's not shaping up to be a cakewalk either. Our country is still so unsettled. We're not out of the woods yet on this virus situation. And I don't like the phrase the new normal. To describe this, have y'all heard people say that? This is the new normal. I don't like it because I don't want this to be the new normal. (laughs) I want to go back to the old normal. I liked the old normal. I don't like the new normal. But that phrase has some value to think about it that way because some aspects of our lives have had to go on hold this year during the pandemic. Maybe it was just your social life, maybe it was your business. Maybe it was work or school or just certain situations in your life that pretty much had to go on hold during this pandemic and then this election and the riots and social unrest that our country is going through. And I think some of us are waiting for things to get back to normal so we can move on. That makes sense. But what I want to say this morning as we go into 2021, as we're limping across the finish line of 2020 is things may not be normal for a while. They may never be normal. And so when you're thinking about, oh, I gotta wait for it to get back to normal, make sure that that's not the attitude you take towards your faith and towards your walk with God. As Christians, we can't afford to have spiritual habits and come to church and have our spiritual disciplines only when things are normal. Things might never be normal again. And so now is the time not to take a break from your faith until the world shapes back up, but to double down on your faith and try and learn what God can teach you in this unique time. today I want to talk a little bit about New Year's resolutions because it's we're four days away. So make your resolutions, write them down, um, get some accountability, whatever it takes. You got to make it through January. Just get to February before you quit this year. So <laughs> that's what I'm telling myself. Christians are people who believe in perpetual improvement. Right? Christians are people who, the whole premise is that we admit that we're not perfect and we're trying to be and we know we never will be. So we're people of progress, but we're not people of perfection. And what that means is we always have to have goals that we're working towards. We always need to have some sort of resolution and New Year's is a great time. It's this artificial benchmark, but who cares? Make a goal and try and make yourself better uh, than you were the year before. I've said this before, but the best New Year's resolution I ever made was to read through the Bible in a year. If you've never read all the way through the Bible, make this resolution, get started, and read through the Bible in a year. I guarantee it will change your life. It was an incredible thing. I can't recommend it enough. So if you don't know what to do next year, if you don't have a resolution, just Google Bible reading in a year. There's a million different plans out there that go through it in different orders. Just make a plan, read more of the Bible in 2021 than you read in 2020. As I say that, and I'm talking about Bible reading plans and New Year's resolutions, I know a lot of you are thinking the same thing as me. You know, I've tried that whole read through the Bible in a year plan, and I've made it a little ways in, but I always get hung up at the same exact spot. Okay, am I the only one, anybody else thinking this? I get to Genesis, I start reading creation, Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark, like all the great stories, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and then you get to Moses, and it's like watching that movie, The Prince of Egypt, and it's like, oh, the 10 plagues, and they cross the Red Sea, and they get the 10 commandments, and that should be the end, right? But it's not. Then, the next verse, Exodus 21, verse one, God says, these are the laws that you are to set before my people. And then you know the game just changed. Let's face it. Let's just be honest this morning. The back half of the book of Exodus is where Bible reading plans go to die. Sometimes you make it through to Leviticus, maybe to Deuteronomy. It's hard. That's the part of the Bible that's called the Torah. It's where God gives this really intricate and elaborate law to his people that they need to follow throughout the Old Testament. And there's so much that we could say about this. But what I wanna tell you this morning Um, As we're talking about this notoriously dry section of the Bible, I want to show you something there that maybe you've never seen before and uh, help you to see it in a different way. As you all start your yearly Bible reading plans and you're approaching this spot. If you have your Bible, flip to Exodus chapter 25. This is the very beginning of the law that God gives his people. There are different types of laws that God gives them. Laws about food. Ceremonial laws about sacrifices and priests, laws about sexual immorality, diseases, festivals and holidays, which we talked a little about last week. Um, but there's one type of law that comes up over and over in the law that seems like the least relevant law to us today. And, and maybe the most boring type of law to read through, and that is descriptions of a building, blueprints for a building called the tabernacle. In the back half of Exodus, there's 20 chapters of laws, 10 of them are dimensions and descriptions of this building, this movable tent called the tabernacle. Here's an artist's depiction of what the tabernacle might've looked like. God tells the Israelites, I want to live among you and here's how it's going to work. You have to build a tent and then you have to build a wall around the tent and you have to bring it with you wherever you go. And when you move, you've got to take it all down, carry it wherever you go. And then when you camp, You got to set it up again. And that's how we're going to do this and live together. What's interesting and what I want to focus on this morning is God has a very, very, very specific vision for what this tabernacle thing is going to look like. Okay. And let me show you what I mean. In Exodus 25, he tells them to build this big tent. Um, Here's another picture of what that might've looked like, by the way. You can see around it the camp. So they put it right in the middle, and you've got hundreds of thousands, millions of Israelites camped around this centerpiece of their camp, this building, the tabernacle, okay? And so here's what it looks like. The beginning of the blueprints. I'm going to start in uh, Exodus 25, verse 8, and we're going to jump around a little bit because um, I, won't, I won't read the whole, ch- the whole 10 chapters to you this morning. Don't worry. God says, have them, the Israelites, make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Okay, here comes the pattern. Skip down to verse 17. He's going to talk about, God's going to talk about what he wants the cover for the Ark of the Covenant to look like. He says, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, a cubit's like 18 inches, and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim, those are angels, out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Okay, as we read through that, can you kind of picture what God's going for here? You've got a lid to a box with two angels. They're facing each other. They've got their wings. Do you see how specific this is? They need to be facing each other. It needs to be carved with the same piece of wood as the lid. God's going into so much detail about the lid for this box. Skip down to verse 23. Now we're going to talk about a table. God says, make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. It's kind of a decorative edge for this table. Skip down to verse 31. We're going to talk about a lampstand. God says, make a lampstand out of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft and make its flower like cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand. Three on one side and three on the other. And then in verse 39, he says, a talent, it's about 75 pounds, of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all of these accessories. Meaning like wick trimmers and places to catch the, uh, to, for the candle to sit. Um, we did the math on this. Somebody actually after first service came up to me. They had done the math on this. An ounce of gold right now is $1,500. 75 pounds of gold would be $1.8 million in today's money. Before we go any further, I just want to pause for a minute and talk to you about this lampstand and this table. Here's an artist's depiction of what the inside of the tabernacle would have looked like. So that tent that we saw in the middle of that courtyard, this is kind of a cutout of the inside. And you can see... Over on the left edge, the closer edge, that big candelabra, it looks like a menorah. That's where the menorah uh, comes from. And then across from it, you can see the table, okay? So there's the candlestick and the table. And those of you who are reading along in a physical Bible could see all the verses that we were skipping was more elaborate descriptions. There's got to be flowers carved into the candlestick, and we get descriptions of what the flowers are supposed to look like. Painstaking detail about this setup. Picture with me a coffee table, plain old coffee table with like seven birthday candles on it, okay? Get that in your head over here. Now picture this 75 pound pure gold lampstand covered in flowers sitting on top of a gold table with gold molding over here, okay? Do you got it, these two different things? What's the difference between those? Assume they give the same amount of light. That's not the issue. Just think about for a minute the difference between these two tables. Why did God want this one? Why did he want that and why did he want it to be so specific? Get that question and think about it as we keep talking a little bit more about this tabernacle. God could have told them to design it any way he wanted. And since it's God giving the plans and God's perfect, we know he knew what he was doing. As we read about this thing, the tabernacle, we need to ponder the idea of beauty for its own sake requiring 75 pounds of gold for a candlestick. There's an element there that's buy-in, right? The Israelites had to donate the gold to build this thing, but there's more to it than that. God wants cherubim carved into the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. He wants flowers carved into the gold on the lampstand. Why the flourishes? Why the expense? Why does it seem like when you read through this description, God is so concerned about appearances? Okay, keep these questions in mind as we keep Reading now, God, he starts off describing the inside of that tent, the most important place, the furniture, the gold, what it's going to look like, and then he starts moving outwards. He describes the structure. Go back to the inside, one slide back on there. You can see around the top of that, there's those curtains that sort of built. He starts describing what the curtains are going to look like and how that, uh, how those should be built. Listen to the detail here. This is if you're following along, this is uh, chapter 26, verse one. Um, He says, Make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. All the curtains are to be the same size, 28 cubits long and four cubits wide. So these curtains are gonna make the outer wall around the tabernacle, and God describes more curtains. There's chapters about these curtains that go all the way around. They need to be covered with goat hair. They need to have animal skins that are dyed red over them. God specifies all these colors to have all over this thing. We've got blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, but it's not just a curtain. He wants them to weave angels into the curtains, pictures. God, even if you keep going, designs clothes for the priests to wear. This is in Exodus 28, as we're moving through the the, uh, tabernacle description. In Exodus 28, just listen to a few of the fashion details that God requires for his priests, okay? He's so specific about even the clothes that they wear. I'll read, uh, and this is in verse four and five if you're following along of Exodus 28. God says, these are the garments that the priests are to make, a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash, They're to make these sacred garments. You make them for your brother Aaron and for his sons, they're the priests, so that they can serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. God explains the high priest has to wear this special priestly robe. It's called an ephod, it's made out of gold and a belt that's also made out of gold. And then the priest wears this golden breastplate, this pure gold breastplate. And then God explains it needs to have 12 stones inlaid into the breastplate that are all really precious, valuable, expensive stones. Okay, can you picture this giant thing? This has gotta be worth so much money, so valuable, this crazy piece of ornate jewelry covered in precious stones. That's what the priest has to wear. And God gives the order for each stone, where it's supposed to go on the breastplate. Do you getting a picture of this? He really cares about the detail as a lot of you will ask, once you start reading through your Bible in a year plan and you hit the back half of Exodus, why is God like this? The Israelites are gonna be wandering on foot through a massive desert For decades. For generations, they're going to be walking around a desert. And the first thing God does to send them off on their journey on foot through a desert, he says, build this giant, expensive, bulky tent you're going to have to carry around with you. And you'll take it down and you'll set it up every time you move. What kind of a God are we dealing with here? He would make such an inefficient thing, such an expensive thing, so specific as his priority for this ancient desert tribe. Well, the first thing about the tabernacle that you have to know, the first thing it tells us about God, and I think this is obvious from what we just read, he really wants to be close to his people. That was the first verse we read. God says, so that I can dwell among you, you have to build this tent. That's just what it takes to be close in proximity to a holy God, and God's willing to put in the work to explain to them how this will work. So he wants presence, and he wants them to also buy in and donate all the gold to build this thing. Those are, those are important elements, but To me, that still doesn't explain the candlestick. Okay, God wants to be near to them, okay. But a 75-pound gold candlestick with flowers on it, the painstaking fashion instructions for the priests. You know, when he's talking about the priests, he says they have to wear a robe made out of a certain type of cloth, and this is God we're talking about here. God says the priests have to wear undergarments made out of a certain type of fabric and cut a certain way. That's how specific that it gets. Here's the explanation that makes the most sense to me. The God who is giving this rule, who is giving these laws, the God of the Bible, the God that we worship, is beautiful. He loves beauty. And he loves to create beautiful things for their own sake. Think about the God. What kind of God? would decide to fill the night sky with an infinite spread. And I love that we talked about this uh, uh, at communion too. Uh, Who decided to fill the night sky with this infinite spread, trillions of stars, shining a billion light years away. Some of them people will never lay eyes on. Uh, He could have just put a sun in the sky. He could have built the world any way he wanted. Think about the intricacy of nature. Think about the beauty of light in the sky The God who designed our eyes to perceive a spectrum of light that enables color instead of just black and white. He didn't have to do that, but God wanted to make colors. He added that to the world. The God who doesn't just want a few birthday candles sitting on a coffee table. He wants a 75-pound pure gold lampstand covered in flowers. The God who can just as easily infuse breathtaking beauty across sprawling galaxies as he can infuse beauty into the microscopic little organisms twirling in a drop of pond water. Beauty is what he does. He filled the world with it because he wanted to. So much of it has no purpose. Think how many miles and miles of flowers bloom on top of mountains and die, and nobody lays eyes on it. I think they bring delight to the heart of God. Some beauty is subjective. You've heard the phrase before, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? okay? Um, People usually talk about this when they're defending something they think is beautiful that nobody else does. Think about your friends that have that big, ugly pet. This is a perfect example. It's this dog. It slobbers. Nobody likes it. It doesn't obey. But to them, they're like, oh, he's just a puppy. He's the most beautiful dog in the world. And it is to them because beauty in in that subjective sense is in the eye of the beholder. But some beauty is not like that. Some beauty is objectively beautiful, no matter what anybody says about it, it's beautiful. And that's a controversial statement. A lot of people might disagree with that. A lot of people would say that beauty is just chemical reactions in our brain. It's just a mathematical evolutionary byproduct without any real purpose. But that's not what we see in the book of Exodus. God commanded artistic embellishments That had no practical function. God commanded aesthetic flourishes that did nothing for anyone. They only served the function of adding beauty. Those curtains, those curtains would have protected the tabernacle from the elements, whether or not they were embroidered with angels, whether or not they featured multiple colors, That lampstand would have shined just as brightly if it didn't have flowers carved into its gold or if it was made of wood or stone. That priest could have worn a t-shirt and jeans instead of the jewels and the robe and he could have done all the jobs required of a priest. But that's not what God wanted. God said, make it out of gold and then put more gold on it and then put precious stones on that. He said, weave angels into the curtains. Make it covered in color have you ever walked into a cathedral before? Take a look at this cathedral. Some of you might, you know, if you've traveled in Europe or something, there's some in America too. Have you ever walked into a cathedral just taking a step through the door? Everybody, when they do, they take a step through the door and they just stop, you know, and then they have to look around. If you've ever walked in, you know this feeling. It takes your breath away. You step inside and it's like you can can hear silence in that huge room. Sometimes it happens in here too. You step in and it's like you can hear the silence and you can feel the stillness. Everybody moves a little bit slower when they're in a cathedral, instinctively. Everybody whispers when they're in a cathedral. It's just an instinct. When you walk into a cathedral, your eyes start traveling upwards automatically. You can't help it. And there's these pillars that lead the lines, guide your eyes upwards into the shadowy colors of the roof. You start to get a feeling in there. Like God is so big and you're so small, but you feel reassured that there's order to everything and beauty and that he's in control. And inside the beauty of the cathedral, you start to feel like you're part of something big, like you're part of something huge. You're part of something ancient and eternal. And as you gaze at the stained glass and the paintings, you feel like bigger dreams are possible than maybe you've ever imagined. Like God is being honored and God is being represented just through the beauty of this place. I don't know about y'all, but I don't feel that kind of beauty when I walk into a 7 Eleven. It's different. There's something special about being in a beautiful place because beauty is a real thing beauty is an objective reality beauty is real because god is real and god is beautiful when we experience beauty we're experiencing god pouring himself out into this world to reveal himself to us that's why he commands the flourishes and the embellishments and the gold and the colors and the stones all over his earthly dwelling because that's who he is it's inefficient But it's not wasteful. It's extravagant, but it's not superficial. It's showy, but it's not vain. It's beautiful. And God makes no apologies in demanding, exacting beauty for his earthly dwelling place. What can we do with a God like this? What can we do in our own lives? In response to a God like this, take a look at Philippians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, we'll put it on the screen. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. This has been sort of a theme verse for me uh, in 2020, especially this part that I've highlighted in red. Listen to what Paul writes at the end of his letter to the Philippians. He says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. This is a command in the Bible, not about what you should do, but about what you should think. The Bible is saying, take your mind and your heart and focus on certain things, which means don't focus on other things. He's saying, think about things that are true, not things that are false, things that are noble, not things that are base. And we can do this in our own lives and start to build that habit. But I want to point out this one to you, whatever is lovely. Thinking about lovely things is a spiritual and biblical command. Paul says, focus your mind on pretty, beautiful thoughts. Have you ever heard the phrase before, you are what you eat? Have people said that to you? I don't like it because people only say it when they're trying to get you to stop eating something bad. Your mom says, you are what you eat. It's true. I mean, your body replaces itself throughout your life. Your cells are dying right now and being regrown, so you're replacing your body. And what is the material that you're using to replace it? It's Whataburger. That's what what you are. Whatever you put into this system is what it uses to rebuild itself, and you're always rebuilding yourself, so really, you are what you eat. It's a terrible message to bring right around the holidays, but it's true. And it's also true about your heart, and it's true about your mind. The output comes from the input. When it comes to the makeup of your heart and of who you are, you are what you eat. What are you feeding your heart? What have you been feeding your heart this year? Paul says, you need to feed your heart lovely things. The Bible says, set your mind and set your heart on beauty, whatever is lovely, because that is the healthy and right food that your heart was made to consume. God knows this. God's the one who built your heart. He knows exactly how it works better than you do. And that's why when God said, Build me an earthly dwelling, He said, I want it to be covered in color, bright and different colors, so that when you're in the middle of this ugly desert, there will be something bright and beautiful right in the middle of your camp that you can see. God said, I want this building to be precise and symmetrical down to the cubit because you're going to be against the backdrop of this chaotic wilderness with no order. I want to be order for you. God said, I want you to fill it with gold and with precious stones because you're made in God's image and you love beautiful things too and your eyes will be drawn to this gold and it will stir up a sense of wonder and awe during these hard years while you're wandering alone in that wilderness. God loves beautiful things for the sake of beauty and you're made in his image and you love beautiful things too. And When we deny ourselves that, when we don't focus on things that are lovely, We're filling our hearts with other things. Let me show you just a couple pictures here as we close to try and prove this point to you. Take a look at this building. This is the same building, both pictures. They remodeled it from the building on your left to the building on the right. Which one do you like better? I know we all like ice cream. Don't be distracted by the ice cream. The building on the left is older. It's covered in flourishes. It's made out of durable stone, It has all this beautiful architecture. The building on the right is a pile of glass topped by an ice cream cone, okay? I'm not saying, well, the the point is that you can tell when you look at it. You can tell when you look at it that one of these is more beautiful than the other one. This is something they've learned in the country of Hungary. Take a look at this. This is another before and after, but it's the opposite. The building on top is the before, The building on bottom is the after. They actually redid that building on top just because they thought it was ugly and they were tired of looking at it, and they made it into the building on bottom because they knew that was more beautiful. Do you see why when you look at it? You know, so many buildings, we don't put any thought into it beyond efficiency, and we make something that'll work that looks like that building on top. But psychology has shown, and the Hungarians knew in the place where this building was, people commit more to beautiful places. People interact more in places that are beautiful. People are willing to love a city or to fight for a city or to care about it and buy in. Civics goes up. Engagement goes up. Families get involved in beautiful places and beautiful cities. And so they said, we need to start making our cities beautiful again. Here's a final example. And this, I'm really cherry picking on this one, but I really want to make this point. So the one on the left is this quaint German village, the one on the right is a Soviet block apartment made out of concrete. Which one would you rather live in, assuming that the amenities were equal? They both got running water, electricity. Which one would you pick? We're drawn to beauty. Beauty is part of you. You have an instinct for it because it's food that you need for your heart and for your mind. God built us that way because he likes beauty and we're made in his image. You have an instinct for beauty. We are designed by God, just like our bodies are designed to be nourished by the food the earth provides, your heart is designed by God to be nourished by the beauty that he provides for us. You're made in the image of a creator who makes beauty everywhere he goes, and that's what we need to do too. So as you're pondering your New Year's resolutions for 2021, consider this question. You are what you eat. Do you have a steady diet of beauty in your life? What are you feeding your heart? Think about the way that you have your home set up or the way you keep your bedroom or your clothing or your life or the food that you eat or a lot of the habits that you have. Is it all arranged in a way that nourishes you with beauty? Or are you surrounded yourself, have you surrounded yourself with a chaotic and unintentional life? You could take this anyway. We just talked about architecture because that's the example we find in Exodus, but think about the music that you listen to. Is there beauty feeding your soul in that music? Think about the shows that you watch, what you intake into your heart and into your mind. Do you see beauty there? And if not, what could you watch instead that might help you consume more beauty? Have you ever made that a priority before? Think about your habits online. You're scrolling. Is there anything beautiful coming down your Facebook feed as you're scrolling past? I'm not saying could there be. I'm saying think about it when you're doing it. Is there anything beautiful to find there? Are there beautiful things being spread on TikTok and Instagram? Maybe if you can find it, but think about for yourself. When you're the one and you're sitting there scrolling, are you seeing beauty? What are you feeding to your heart and feeding to your mind? Even if your New Year's resolution, and this is mine, no shame here. If your New Year's resolution is something like to lose weight, something practical, dig back to think about your motives. Are you trying to lose weight Because of pride or because of insecurity? To avoid a negative? Or maybe you could reorient your goals to try and pursue a positive, such as to to create more beauty in the world, to make yourself more beautiful, to glorify the God who loves beauty. So as you're building these resolutions and goals for your life, because we're people who are always improving, you can make the goal to be to pursue the positive end of beauty. And when you need to make changes, you can make it to avoid not having beauty in your life. God's command of the Israelites with that tabernacle was to make a beautiful thing. And that's a command that he gave to them. That's a command that he gives to us. The lesson of the tabernacle is that God uses beauty as a language to reveal himself to us. And when you experience beauty, you're experiencing God. So when we train ourselves to see beauty, when we surround ourselves to see beauty, we open ourselves up for God to reveal himself to us. This has been a ugly year. In so many ways, 2020, it's just, it seems like it lacked beauty in so many ways. We have this pandemic, these lockdowns, the world is lacking in so much hope. Our country is in so much unrest. It's not gonna go away in 2021. When the, when the ball drops, this isn't all gonna stop. It's not a bad dream. It might be the new normal. We need to work to follow What God commanded the Israelites, and to add beauty into this ugly world. We need to make sure that we're not feeding our hearts only the ugliness that we see on the news and only the ugliness that this world is assaulting us with, but as Christians, to fight back by making the world more beautiful, making yourself and your family and your home and your city and your country more beautiful, because that's the God we serve a God of beauty. We want to be people as Christians who are listening for God everywhere who are looking for God everywhere. And that means we need to train our eyes, train our ears, train our hearts to scout for beauty everywhere we go. That's how you encounter God. That's a way that you can become more like him by surrounding yourself with beautiful things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in so many ways. Through the love that we have for each other, and through the natural beauty of this world and through the beauty of your word. Thank you for everyone here. Thank you for guiding us through this difficult year. Some of us have lost so much. We don't know where things are going to go next year, but we have hope, not hope that you'll make everything better, but hope that you already have restored this world and restored our hearts. We praise you for being patient with us even when we ignore you, trying to get our attention, trying to communicate with us. Teach our eyes to see you. Teach our ears to hear you. Teach our hearts to love you. In Jesus' name, amen.